Hello and welcome to the Football Collective Podcast. The Football Research Podcast highlighting members of the collective, their research and all football related things in their life. The 2018 World Cup has been and gone. It now belongs to history, as do its big moments that will define international football in the coming years. 32 teams travelled to Russia with the hopes of their nation on their shoulders and the eyes of the world upon them. For one month, we got to witness the subplots of all these teams on and off the field, the brilliance and the controversy in equal measure. The French were back in form, the Germans departed early, the grit of the Croatians shone through and of course there was the agony of Argentina, a country that hosts 24 teams within its capital of Buenos Aires. This shows the magnitude of the game within the country. Maradona's madness, Messi's misery, all within the space of just 14 days. Two weeks, we witnessed it all. Nothing but chaos and headlines for the right and wrong reasons followed Argentina. And it seems like almost desperate times for this country. Even recent reports saying they want to offer Pep Guardiola a salary of £12 a year to try and lure him away from his project at Manchester City. What exactly is going on? Has this been a longer problem? Has it just now come to fruition? Well, we of course could not talk about this without our next guest, whose current research focuses on football, politics and cultural identity in Argentina. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jim O'Brien to the podcast. How are you, Jim? Hello, hello, Josh. I'm really fine. I, I, I thought that was a, a very stirring introduction. It's, hmm. it's a pretty good national anthem, isn't it? In yeah, terms of, uh, brilliant. Uh, how it kind of gets the passions going, yeah? That, that was one of the, the highlights for me, watching Argentina in this World Cup, but as we'll discuss, there probably wasn't many, so... That's that's probably where we'll start. Where 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 do we start with this? Well, what went wrong in Russia? A draw with Iceland, a loss to Croatia, a win against Nigeria, and then a loss to France, which probably it, the scoreline probably flattered them. They, they they got dominated all the game. So what what do you think went wrong? Well, I think uh, in one way, if you're a, a, a football watcher, the um, meltdown, as I call it wasn't that surprising. Uh, If you look at uh, the qualifying campaign Sao Paulo brought in, they were in serious danger of not qualifying at all for Russia 2018. And uh, only um, in the last game against Ecuador, when, you know, the the saviour figure of Messi scored a hat-trick to get them to Russia in the first place. So whilst the expectations of the fans that followed them, what, 20, 30, 40,000, might have been high. They were not that realistic when you look at the team itself. Uh, so, um, usual thing, ageing team, uh, too messy dependent without really knowing how to play him for the best of the team because however he played was a shadow of what he has been for Barcelona. So, it, it, it wasn't that a surprise. It wasn't a surprise. Ageing team, uh, tactics changed every match, uh, no consistency, um, uh, dressing room problems, who ran the team, was it Messi, was it Sampaoli, you know, it goes on, yeah? Well, you, we talk about Messi there, and the pressure on Messi was is obviously visible when the camera shot at him, I can't remember what which game it was, but the pressure got to him, you could see he's, he's making gestures with his hands, pulling his face down, the anthem's on. He just seems like everything's on top of him. And one of the things I picked up personally um, in the Iceland game was his penalty miss. And what, but before he took it, a lot of people might say that this is disgenuine, but uh, before he took it, I said, well, 
Messi's penalty record's not the greatest compared to a lot of other players of his stature, not taking anything away from the brilliance that he has. But uh, having a look at that, he scored 12 in 16 for Argentina, giving him a 75% ratio. And he misses big penalties. So the, the, Chile, the miss against Chile in the Copa America, obviously the miss against Iceland to win the game. And then there's the, a few misses for Barcelona. I think it was the Chelsea semi-final of the Champions League in 2012 when Chelsea went on to win it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but do you think that they're giving him too much too much responsibility and putting far too much on his shoulders? And if this, this is the end for Messi, who are they going to look to now? I, th- I think the, the there's two things there. I mean, obviously, it was a match against um, uh, Croatia um, when, uh, you know, his tortured figure... Um, uh, looked old beyond his 30 years, yeah, with all that responsibility, all that pressure. Uh, what a contrast with the fresh-faced kid who first dazzled us with Barcelona when he was 16, 17 and 18, you know. So all that pressure. And with the penalties, of course, um, uh, his record isn't great, but... Then again, um, a lot of his contemporaries, like Ronaldo misses penalties, Griezmann misses penalties. It's because goalkeepers are better and, of course, they've got a lot more practice for all the uh, social media, all the reruns of um, of, uh, uh, watching penalties. So uh, it's very hard for him to score. He tries every approach. Um, So um, that's part of it. He's going to miss quite a few. But I think you compare... I mean, the thing of comparing with, of course, is Maradona. And, of course, people say, well, you know, uh, 1986, um, let's have a look at it, uh, when Maradona seemingly had all the pressure of the Argentinian nation to, to win the World Cup. But if you look at it in terms of um, Gallardo was a coach, uh, OK, it wasn't a bad team that was around Maradona, a sensational player. It was, there were some very good players, you know, uh, running through that team. Whereas if you look at the um, uh, uh, Argentina team 2018, particularly wherever young players, Mascarano returning from China, clearly not um, and been a very good player, not up to it. Um, and if you look at uh, uh, players... Um, you know, Di Maria, a lot of inconsistency. Uh, so uh, there wasn't really the uh, the players around him. So I guess maybe the expectations were maybe a bit too high. Yeah. We'll come back to Maradona um, just after this, but uh, the team, as you say, was very old, and then there's players like DiBala that have not that's not had a lot of game time. And anyone that watches European football will know the level that DiBala plays at is phenomenal. You've got Icardi that wasn't picked after 29 league goals in Serie A, which is no no easy feat in itself. And I, I went to the Italy-Argentina game and it, at the Etihad. And even there, the, the team they picked, it, was, it seemed very very old and very face-fitty. What, what is going on that these players are not getting picked on their ability? Well, I think it's the last of the old guard like Icardi that was a stunning um, kind of not to even be in the squad you know rather like the German um, squad not having Sana you know not to have him in the squad it, 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 there's some sensational things so I think what it is maybe um, uh, there's 
a deeper malaise going on. That's the heart of it. So if you look at, and this is really taps into like the nitty gritty, the history of um, uh, Argentinian football. Great players, great players, but how many great teams have they actually produced, the national team? irrespective of them winning the World Cup twice. How many great teams, you know? Uh, certainly nothing to rival Brazil 1970, Holland 74, you know, in terms of your round play. So this is kind of rooted in uh, a, 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 a deeper malaise in, in Argentinian football. Uh, for example, um, the recent um, uh, developments... Uh, tap into a long-running dispute. You mentioned in your introduction the importance of Buenos Aires, yeah? Uh, in terms of Argentina, in terms of the club football, and in how that plays out in terms of a national team, Argentina is Buenos Aires. See, Messi's the exception from Rosario, so he's already a bit of an outsider in some ways. That You mentioned 24 clubs, yeah? Is so really... Is, Ma is, it Mar is it Maradona that's from the, the same place as well? Is, Ma is Maradona from Rosario too? Ah. He's from La Boca. He's from one of the... It's been gentrified now when I was there. Yeah. It's still a pretty dodgy place to go at night, but La Boca was one of the poorest barrios in uh, of the 49 barrios in Buenos Aires. So it's a huge, sprawling city. So... Uh, Messi is from Rosario, which is, you know, sort of outside of that huge bubble. So that's why, in terms of the iconography surrounding um, Maradona, he can be much more like a man of the people, a, buen, a, 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 Bobeno, a, a, a Buenos Aires resident. But if you look at it in terms of um, the deeper malaise, in terms of Argentinian football, the power struggle, and of course, during the World Cup, the performances on the field, with a few exceptions, Messi still scored a wonderful goal against Nigeria. Um, uh, Di Maria still got a wonderful goal against France, but the overall um, uh, performance was fractured and splintered, and that reflects the uh, power structures within the Argentinian game. Loads of um, uh, uh, reforms okay 28 teams in the first division too many but domestic football is still weak uh, of those players who plays in argentina yeah uh, virtually nobody yeah one or two yeah so they're exiles they're exiles so um the, the power struggle is uh, between the argentinian fa uh, very bureaucratic very anachronistic, rooted in that 19, late 19th century, early 20th century amateurism. They hold the shot, so there's a, a tension between the league, um, the uh, national team, the, uh, the clubs, and the Argentinian FA. And of course, if you add in uh, the hooliganism and the corruption, you've got a pretty potent mix of instability there, yeah? It it does sound like absolute chaos when you compare it to say the stability and the, the glamour of the Premier League and it's 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 honestly mad to see. But um, we go back to Maradona when we can't mention Maradona and not mention his madness. You know, there's 
accusations that he's on drugs, he's, he's collapsed, he's had to go uh, to to seek medical attention after a game, he's flipping off fans, he's, he, it kind of just felt a bit like it was a little bit, in, in the best of respects, embarrassing the side and it became more of like a, a laughing stock and a sideshow about what's Maradona doing and then Maradona's come out and said that the team's not to blame and this is a direct quote from Maradona. The culprit of everything is the president of the AFA, Tapia. He lacks personality. He does not know what football is. He thought Sao Paulo could solve all the problems with computers, drones and 14 assistants, but football is not this. So, when you've got someone who's such a a, a god and an icon and he's he's going against that, what what sort of environment is that meant to build for Argentina and how would that have been taken back there? Well, you see, in a way, like, like we saw um, in, some, in some ways during 2018 and in previous World Cups, and remember that Maradona in 2010 was the trainer of a national side, yeah? Um, and, of course, uh, uh, and that team, uh, I was at the match in Cape Town when it was dissected by Germany, when if you looked at it on paper, they were pretty level... Uh, evenly matched teams, but Maradona charismatic, uh, is he a benefit to the, the team or the, the, um, uh, uh, the squad or a hindrance? Now, of course, he's got that populism, that taps into the political dimensions, that political kind of populism, man of the people, and an outsider as well, the underdog. And of course, Compared with the suited uh, money men, uh, the boring old farce, if you want to put it that way, of the Argentinian Football Association, very, very different in some ways. So there is a disconnect, a disconnect between those running the game and the fans and those playing it. So Maradona's spot on in some ways in his analysis, but of course the differences with him is that even at the peak of his playing career, you know, with Napoli and certainly with Barcelona, <clears throat> there were um, many outside stories, you know, about his behaviour. But once he was on the field, he stamped his personality on the game. He seemed somehow... Uh, most of the time when he actually played for Argentina to be able to switch off from all the stuff that was going on outside. What a contrast with Messi in that haunted figure um, that cut a, a forlorn figure in many ways before the Croatia game. Whereas uh, Maradona had that, I, I guess, that spirit or something. And that means, you know, like, I mean, uh, you've seen him when he's with his Argentinian shirt with the fans, where all the ex-players like Pele and Bobby Charles were in the director's boxes, yeah? So that, it's a bit of a bittersweet thing, you know, in some ways, yeah? FIFA are coming to, uh, in the firing line for that as well, because all the legends that were there, they were getting paid 10 grand a day to beat the tournament, so... It, there's a lot of accusations saying FIFA put him there and that's why the camera coincidentally was on him every two minutes and I can't help but think his antics as as well as being a good for a good man of the people I just don't think it's helped with the side um, and I, I just yeah, yeah it just it didn't it didn't look good and then you get you get him like holding Messi shirt up and he's doing stuff like that. I just I, I just love to be in the mind of the Argentinian squad. And then, 
you've got him having friction with the coach and then there's accusations that the squad are picking the team and Messi's saying to the coach, why are you not bringing Sergio on? Like, what what was going on there? Yeah, I mean, like with the, Me- with the Maradona, especially with the, uh, like, FIFA loves its celebrities. And of course, uh, most of them, if you get... Um, um, regardless of the stories surrounding like people like Pele and Beckenbauer, the, the golden boys have not have not been scandal free that usually they'll behave in the way that they're supposed to behave whereas Maradona's a loose cannon you could say it's stage managed yeah? yeah in some ways yeah uh, by uh, the cameras you'll always get something you know because one well, Maradona he's not uh, camera shy but if you get to the um, uh, the actual team. Now, Sao Paulo was brought in as the saviour in some ways. He had an impossible job. <clears throat> and of course, he was brought in on the back of his success with Chile, yeah, uh, in La Copa America. That uh, it was a very different um, uh, uh, set of circumstances. Uh, one, uh, and all of these guys are disciples. You mentioned Guardiola of Biesla, yeah? Um, you know, now, interestingly, at Leeds... The mighty, the mighty Leeds manager. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> it will be interesting. Let, let's see. However, like I am looking last, forward to it. I am looking it forward to it, I must say. Yeah, I mean, and of course, the one time he was successful, really, was for that brief period with Athletic Bilbao, that they're all disciples of his kind of way of playing now it worked with Chile one because expectations were so much lower yeah um, in terms of the hierarchy of um, uh, South American football I mean Chile has produced some wonderful individual players but the expectation around the national team is um, uh, less high and of course for them punching above the way to succeed in La Copa America they could follow um, and the outstanding players they had uh, could follow that Biesla style high pressing um, in a way which was effective whereas um, how would you do it with the collection of individuals that um, uh, that Argentina have so it was a, a fix uh, to get them to qualify. But then, of course, um, what stood out was no real team pattern um, in terms of um, uh, any consistency at all. So in a certain way, Sao Paulo had the proverbial uh, poison chalice, was bound to fail. And, of course, um, uh, maybe he just trusted on experience rather than like Joachim Lowe did virtually a lot of the team that have got them to the World Cup final in 2014 a lot were still around but even then in 2014 um, uh, even though they got to the final they didn't convince entirely so let's go back to 2014 probably probably go down as a good year that they've got to the final and they played quite, quite good football sorry Um and I thought they were, I thought they were unlucky not to win it, um, but then at the top of FIFA you have George Del Hon who was found guilty of taking bribes of up to five hundred thousand dollars for broadcasting rights for national games between two thousand eleven and twenty fourteen. He was then found dead in a suburb of Buenos Aires called Lanús 
uh, on the train tracks, colliding with a train, and, and it was suspected suicide, which is absolutely awful. And then you've got Julio Grandona, if I've pronounced that correctly. Yes. And then uh, the president of the AFA from 1979, a key power broker of FIFA's executive committee, and one of the close allies of Sepp Blatter, who's praised him for his work and this, that and the other. And then he's accused of accepting up to $25 million for TV rights from a company called Terenos. And then he's died as well in 2014. So everything to get to this World Cup seems to have just accumulated and... It seems like the bad performances are just the straw that brought the camels back. What's going on inside of the AFA and how did they respond from that and what are they going to do now to try and ensure that stuff like that doesn't happen again? Well, you see, it's an interesting parallel because uh, the uh, so I agree with your take on it that in 2014 where, where Messi was voted a player of a tournament and so on, uh, they were, were a bit unlucky in the end not to win the thing. And so... Um, whilst that was going on about a chance of winning, and especially, uh, you know, tapping into the historical dimension, the prize was great, you know, to win the World Cup at, you know, at the home of their greatest rivals, Brazil, was a great prize. So that was the ultimate distraction, which papered over these cracks and um, dodgy goings-on, like you say, kind of... um, money changing hands suicides or apparent suicides uh whereas by 2018 the um uh endemic corruption is so uh entrenched uh that by 2018 once the team started to fail to perform the um uh the uh focus is on those wider issues yeah and maybe the corruption is a cause of what happened rather than an effect, if you're with me, yeah? Yeah. And so um, where do we go from here? Where do we look ahead? Where does reform come from? Um, uh, very difficult because um, one thing which I'm sure you know, Josh, is that this is linked into those subcultures of uh, Latin American and Southern European football right from the inception football was uh, highly politicised and political leaders in Argentina have done a lot of work um, you know the conference on Limerick uh, at Limerick last year on Peronism and its enduring impact on the Argentinian game uh, the whole thing with the 1978 World Cup uh, so that deeply embedded nature of politics and football being intertwined and corruption is part of that corruption and patronage so where does reform lie? Um, well, okay, um, uh, two things um, I think lead to reform. It's going to be difficult. The political will has to be there. Now, where Maradona maybe has a point is the AFA too much entrenched traditional power. So it's in one way they mirror FIFA, you know, without some of the dramas of. Lack of regulation, lack of accountability, uh, political infighting, trade-offs, bungs, you name it, it's there. So how do you claim, how do you, how do you get away from that? And of course, what's happening now is because so much time and effort has been spent on that, 
Argentina hasn't got the young players. So it's not just the the first team. If you look back to if you look to the under 23s, the under 19s, the under 17, with one or two exceptions, the talent isn't there anymore. So maybe the people are starting to turn back a bit, turn their backs on the beautiful game. So the reform leads to political reform to clean up the game from the top. So what we need is the political leaders um, uh, to um, get involved. And the clubs, the clubs need to uh, be be uh, more autonomous from the Argentinian Football Association, you know, to insert their um, uh, integrity and so, so, so on. I don't know if that helps a bit. Some people say it's so cyclical, it will always be there. It's endemic to uh, football politics and culture in Argentina. But I'm not so sure, you know... Um, you see, like, going back to 1978, in with Menotti, one of the celebrated gods of Argentinian football for delivering the World Cup. Um, yeah, criticism there since. I mean, he's still around, he still does interviews, that he kept completely silent uh, at the time uh, and since about what was going on in the country, yeah? Uh, and you know, to concentrate on the football. So there's always been this kind of hand-in-hand involvement with politics, but also that detachment from it, yeah? So I read on an article in preparation for this um, podcast that televised football is used as a political weapon, um, but I, I probably wouldn't be able to comment on it genuinely without uh, the knowledge of this. So can you tell us a bit more about examples of this, if it still goes on or... If what the AFA do to face it is it is it is an actual thing? Well, it's it's uh, um, again. I mean, going back into the media history, it plays it out. Of course, radio was a dominant medium in the fifties and sixties. Two examples: one from history, one much more contemporary. Um, uh, in in historical terms, the nineteen seventy eight World Cup, of course. Uh, uh, a new media centre was opened for the foreign press. It was a bribe, an inducement, paid for by the, the hunter. So they would have wonderful facilities and concentrate on football. Whereas, um, uh, whilst audiences abroad watched the World Cup in colour, the domestic audience watched it in black and white for the most part. So there's always that trade-off, you know, in terms of political willing dealing. Bring the thing much more for, uh, uh, forward. Of course, uh, you go to Buenos Aires and you have the Premier League, uh, La Liga, and so on. Uh, whereas audience crowds for, um, apart from the biggest clubs, attendances were in almost terminal decline uh, for the domestic game because everybody watches it. Consumption on TV, so that's where the money's made, but where does the money go? So that tradition of political patronage, where the TV companies um, uh, buy the rights to the games, uh, and then uh, political... um, So you get an alliance between the club, the um, political parties, and the TV companies siphoning off the rights of the games. So a lot of corruption in how those contracts are, are 
are, are, are dealt out, yeah? So, uh, again, um, not sufficiently accountable or regulated. Um, many people getting rich, uh, like, like the whole idea of state broadcast of games, you know? Um, it's not. They're, they're hybrids, they're private companies coining that popular support for football. So if you go in, into any bar, have you been to Buenos Aires, Josh? Have you ever been? Uh, unfortunately not, no. Uh, if I, I hope I am lucky enough to get to Argentina one day, though. Yeah, but if you go to Buenos Aires in any time over the weekend, um, the bar is full of people watching football, you know, uh, uh, from all over the world. But if you go to the uh, stadiums, uh, Apart from the very big matches, there are low attendances, you know, uh, attendances are falling. And so, um, uh, because of um, the Barras Bravas, the image of the, the game, whereas the fans are highly politicised as well. And of course, this, um, uh, some of the uh, fan groups have a direct say in the governance of individual clubs. They're almost like vigilante groups on, in their territory. And the uh, leaders get their money as well. So it's all, all money. It's all money dominated with very little regulation and accountability. So uh, the mediatization of Argentinian football is highly politicized. I mean, it is in the UK as well, but in a more oblique sense. Yeah. So we talk about the fans there. Uh, especially at the World Cup, they were loud. They got a lot of good press. Um, I was in, I was impressed with how loud they were. They were passionate during the anthem. They got behind the team, and it seemed like, especially in the Nigeria game, when they came came through that and got the win, it seems like the fans almost pulled them through. Not to be dishing out cliches, but it wasn't reported a lot that they got fined eighty thousand pounds for homophobic chanting, and some of the fans were fighting in the stadiums, and a few videos went viral on Twitter, especially, and. There was a lot of the pre-media press and that this sort of stuff that they were going to be fighting with the Russians, but I don't know if that's genuine, but um, in your email you sent to me before this, you mentioned football violence in, in Argentinian football, and it was present at the World Cup, but is it even worse at the domestic game? Have they got an issue with uh, hooliganism? Um, is, there, is there a lack of crowd control? What What is that? Yeah, there's, it's, again endemic in this is such a complex and fascinating subject um, uh, the paper that I wrote on the back of um, the Limerick conference was called Violence, Idealism and a Beautiful Game you know uh, so the violence is a counterpost to the idealism the rhetoric and the reality and of course it reflects a wider political culture of violence in Argentinian society you know, uh, uh, of volatility and violence. Now, the rhetoric, and that's w w what would be celebrated by all those fans chanting, supporting the team, maybe carrying them the line, that's a sense of la nuestra, our nation, yeah? Uh, carrying the flag, supporting the team regardless of what, yeah? So that's uh, that display of passion, that display of passion, which... Uh, the crowds are passionate. If you go back, you know, even to the uh, uh, 1950s, uh, 40s, 50s with Peron, 
and not particularly a football fan, he exploited or utilised, manipulated the passion of um, the fans of football to unite the nation together so the rhetoric and the passion could indicate somehow a united society around around football when actually it's deeply divided. It's um, So violence around the game is part and parcel of Argentinian life. So if you look at it, and of course all the intolerances, it's not inclusive in many ways. Um, you know, the idea about um, what's a famous book that I've been reading recently about Archetti, about masculinities and all of this, uh, where he compares tango, polo and football as um, an expression of male identity in Argentina. And that's still there. And that might account for some of the um, homophobia, uh, the chauvinism, the machismo, which is endemic into the game. And that dominates um, uh, club football. Club football. So, just one final question for you. After all this absolute chaos and what seems like an awful period for Argentinian football, where do you see them going from here and what do you think is going to be next? How do you think they're going to get on in the international competitions? Just where do they go from here, basically? Well, I mean, the deeper, the deeper pattern, there's a crisis of legitimacy. You know, a crisis of legitimacy, and that underpins like a crisis of identity. You know, who do those players resent, represent, uh, irrespective of the tradition, the practice, uh, the passion, all of that was a dislocation. Um, on the positive side, they will produce wonderful players, wonderful players, yeah, because um, uh, they do, you know, individuals. Now, whether they can get um, um, a coach in place, Guardiola, um, I think it might be one of the least, you never know in football, but one of the least likely destinations for his next project, I would have thought. As, yeah. a, as a side note to that, do you not think that that's, that makes him look a bit desperate? Because you're not going to really lure Pep Guardiola away from a side that he's built, he's, got, he's literally got an endless stream of money and... They're looking very, very good. They're looking like they're going to probably win the Champions League in the next few years. Do you not think that is kind of a, a desperate cry? A desperate move. Uh, the best coaches um, have come from within. I mentioned Menotti and Deliado, and there was a tension between football and football. You know, I mean, the the bête noire of Argentinian club football. Like, you probably might have heard of them, Estudiantes from the late 60s, they're outsiders as well, from Buenos Aires, they're from La Plata, you know, one of the other, Latin Rosario, the only other two centres of club football, and Estudiantes uh, um, uh, perfected anti-football because the previous romantic notions of La Nuestra, the beautiful game, they couldn't win, you know? So Menotti did it with team play. Bilyaru did it with a lot of anti-football, but he had Maradona, yeah? So uh, what they need now is that much overused word is like uh, uh, a philosophy, a coach, um, um, an in, uh, some, uh, somebody strong enough who is uh, uh, schooled in the Argentinian game, but is strong enough 
to be independent from the Argentinian FA. So you need a certain uh, autonomy for it to work again. As for future coaches, wow, um, don't know. Um, uh, obviously Spanish speaking, uh, I, I don't know, probably from within. In the future, um, is Messi now, will he retire from international football? Um, in one way, it's a great loss if he does. I mean, this legacy of never having won the World Cup, you know. Well, many great players like George Best never even played in one, you know. Cruyff never won a World Cup, uh, and so on. Di Stefano, you know. Mm. Uh, Net Puskas never won a World Cup. His legacy is secure. There is the point now, and this is a sacrilege, that maybe Messi gets in the way of that rebuilding process. I, I understand what you mean there. So maybe example, maybe they'll be better off. Yeah, without him, in the yeah. sense that, um, yeah, look, he can. I'm a great Messi fan. He can go on if he's got the motivation to play for Barcelona or somebody else till he's 36, 37, you know, and still be very good and still be outstanding. But I just wonder um, because now he's the still a great player. I just wonder whether his time has come and gone and whether his stamp on the game and his legacy is so great a shadow over who is the next coast coach. It might be better if um, he quits, you know, and allows them to build uh, it's a structure. They need to start like the other golden generation, you know, with Batistuta and all that. You know, like late 1990s, uh, 2002, great expectations. They bombed in Japan, Korea, yeah? Uh, they were products, most of them, of the under-17s. So I think what they need to do is maybe accept that uh, uh, for the first team, there might be one or two fallow years. And they need to really start by... Uh, under-17s, you know, like under-17s, under-19s, get those young players coming through. And in the meantime, uh, bring into the team uh, those younger players like Diablo, Icardi, give them a chance, yeah? There'll be a spate of retirements. Will Aguero play for the national team again? Not sure, you know? Uh, so that's the thing, is to concentrate on a youth policy and somehow La Selección, the national team, needs to be a bit separate. You see, in one way, um, that ultra-professionalism, whereas the AFA is rooted in amateurism, you know, and hierarchies of power, yeah? And until they have that approach um, where the uh, manager and the team has a bit more autonomy it's going to keep on repeating itself. Well, firstly, can I just say thank you for coming on? This has been a fascinating insight into a country that obviously a lot of people will watch out for when they play, and I've learnt a lot, and I'm sure people that are listening will have. Uh, are you going to be at the conference yourself in, in Glasgow in November? In November? <coughs> I've got to do my abstract, but I, I'm going to speak then, uh, because... Um, I've done about two different things. Um, uh, like uh, Dan Parnell and co have asked me to do a chapter for this book there 
proposing with Routledge, and I said I would, on football policies and identity, and I'll write something on Argentina. But what I wanted to do, I hinted at it in in a bit earlier on, I want to link the contemporary events with what I call that crisis of legitimacy, because that was what was really going on in um, uh, Russia, was a crisis of legitimacy. And of course that made the passion of the fans um, even sadder in a certain way. Well, personally, I do hope you're there. It'd be fascinating to listen to you again. This is I mean, yeah, I'll get the abstract in, and um, uh, it's been really good to do this. And um, I hope that uh, 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 people will listen to it, and um, they can um, give any feedback, comment. So, when will the broadcast actually go up, and when will it go on? Get this out as soon as we can. Uh, so, thank you, Jim. And if you've not got your tickets, if you've not got your tickets for the conference yet, you can get them on Eventbrite. They are on sale now. You're going to miss out on brilliant talks like this one we've just had. Um, but for now, it's we'll see you next time. And thank you for listening. And we're just going to play out with the Himino Nacional Argentino.